Chapter Forty One of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Forty One. Deerbrook in Shadow. It was some hours before Hope appeared at home again, and when he did, he was very grave. Mr. Walcott had been truly glad to see him, and it was plain would have applied to him for aid and cooperation some days before, if Mrs. Rowland had not interfered to prevent any consultation of the kind. The state of health of Deerbrook was bad, much worse than Hope had had any suspicion of. Whole families were prostrated by the fever in the laborers' cottages, and was creeping into the better sort of houses. Mr. Walcott had requested Hope to visit some of his patients with him, and what he had seen had convinced him that the disease was of a most formidable character, and that a great mortality must be expected in Deerbrook. Walcott appeared to be doing his duty with more energy than might have been expected, and it seemed as if whatever talent he had was exercised in his profession. Hope's opinion of him was raised by what he had seen this morning. Walcott had complained that his skill and knowledge could have no fair play among a set of people so ignorant as the families of his Deerbrook patients. They put more faith in charms than in medicines or care, and were running out in the cold and damp to have their fortunes told by night, or in the grave of the morning, if a fortune-teller promised long life, all the warnings of the doctor went for nothing. Then again the people mistook the oppression, which was one of the first symptoms of the fever, for debility, and before the doctor was sent for, or in defiance of his directions. The patient was plied with strong drinks, and his case rendered desperate from the beginning. Mr. Walcott had complained that the odds were really too much against him, and that he believed himself likely to lose almost every fever patient he had. It may be imagined how welcome to him were Mr. Hope's countenance, suggestions, and influence, such as the prejudices of the people had left it. Dr. Levitt's influence was little more avail than Mr. Hope's. From this day he was as busily engaged among the stick as the medical gentlemen themselves, laying aside his books and spending all his time among his parishioners, not neglecting the rich, but especially devoting himself to the poor. He cooperated with Hope in every way, raising money to cleanse, air, and dry the most cheerless of the cottages, and to supply the indigent sick with warmth and food. But all appeared to be of little avail. The disease stole on through the village, as if it had been left to work its own way. From day to day tidings came abroad of another and another, who was down in the fever. The Tucker's maid-servant, Mr. Hill's shop-boy, poor Mrs. Paxton, always sure to be ill when anybody else was, and all John Ringworth's five children. In a fortnight, the church bell began to give token how fatal the sickness was becoming. It told till those who lived very near the church were weary of hearing it. On the afternoon of a day, when its sound had scarcely ceased since sunrise, Dr. Levitt and Hope met at the door of the corner house. "'You are the man I wanted to meet,' said Dr. Levitt. "'I have been inquiring for you.' but your household could give me no account of you. Could you just step home with me, or come to me in the evening, will you? But stay, there is no time like the present. After all, so if you will allow me, I will walk in with you now, and if you are going to dinner, I will make one. I have nobody to sit down with me at home at present, you know, or perhaps you do not know. Indeed, I was not aware of the absence of your family, said Hope, 
leading the way into the parlour where margaret at the moment was laying the cloth you must have wondered that you had seen nothing of my wife all this week if you did not know where she was i thought it was best all things considered to send them every one away i hope we have done right i find i am more free for the discharge of my own duty now that i am unched by their fears for me and untroubled by my own anxiety for them i have sent them all abroad and shall go for them when this epidemic has run its course and not till then i little thought what satisfaction i could feel in walking about my own house to see how deserted it looks i never hear that bell but i rejoice that all that belong to me are so far off i wanted to ask you about that bell said mr hope my question may seem to you to savor strongly of dissent but i must inquire whether it is absolutely necessary for bad news to be announced to all deerbrook every day and almost all day long however far we may be from objecting to hear it in ordinary times should not our first consideration now be for the living it is not the case altered by the number of deaths that takes place at a season like this i am quite of your opinion mr hope and i have talked with owen and many others about that matter within this week i have proposed to dispense for the present with the custom which i own myself to be attached to in ordinary times but which i now see may be pernicious but it cannot be done we must yield the point i will not engage to cure any sick or to keep any well who live within sound of that bell i am not surprised to hear you say so but this practice has so become a part of people's religion that it seems as if worse effects would follow from discontinuing it than from pursuing the usual course owen says there is scarcely a person in deerbrook who would not talk of a heathen death burial if the bell were silenced and if once the people's repose in their religion is shaken i really know not what will become of them i agree with you there their religious feelings must be left untouched or all is over but i am sorry that this particular observance is implicated with them so completely as you say it will be well if it does not soon become an impossibility to toll the bell for all who die it would be well too said dr levitt if this were the only superstition with people entertained they are more terrified with some others than with this bell i am afraid they are more depressed by their superstitions than sustained by their religion have you observed hope how many of them stand looking at the sky every night yes and we hear wherever we go of fiery swords and dreadful angels seen in the clouds and the old prophecy have all come up again at least all of them that are dismal as for the death watches they are out of number and there is never a fire lighted but a coffin flies out and this story of a ghost of a coffin with four ghosts to bear it and goes up and down in the village all night long said hester i really do not wonder that it shakes the nerves of the sick to hear of it they say that no one can stop those bearers or get any answer from them but on they glide let what will be in their way come tell me said dr levitt have not you yourself looked out for that sight hester acknowledged that she had seen a real substantial coffin carried by human bearers pass down the middle of the street at an hour past midnight the removal of a body from a house where it had died she supposed to another whence it was to be buried this coffin and the ghostly one she took to be one and the same 
Dr. Levitt mentioned instances of superstition, which could scarcely have been believed by him. If related by another, do you know the Platts? He inquired of Hope. Have you seen the poor woman that lies ill there with her child? Yes, what a state of destitution they are in. At the very time that that woman and her child are lying on shavings, begged from the carpenter's yard, her mother finds means to fee the fortune-teller in the lane for reading a dream. The fortune-teller dooms the child, and speaks doubtfully of the mother. I could not conceive the reason why no one of the family would do anything for the boy. I used what authority I could while I was there, but I fear he has been left to his fate since. The neighbors will not enter the house. What neighbors, said Margaret, you have never so much as asked me. You are our main stay at home, Margaret. I could ask no more of you than you do here. Margaret was now putting the dinner on the table. It consisted of a bowl of potatoes, salt, the loaf and butter, and a pitcher of water. Dr. Levitt said grace, and they sat down, without one word of apology from host or hostess. Though Dr. Levitt had not been prepared for an evidence like this of the state of affairs in the family, he had known enough of their adversity to understand the case now at a glance. No one ate more heartily than he, and the conversation went on, as if a sumptuous feast had been spread before the party. I own myself disappointed, said Hope, in finding among our neighbors so little disposition to help each other. I hardly understand it, trusting, as I have ever done in the generosity of the poor, and having always before seen my faith justified, the apathy of some and the selfish terrors of others are worse to witness than the disease itself. How can you wonder, said Dr. Levitt, when they have such an example before their eyes, and certain of their neighbors, to whom they are accustomed to look up? Sir William Hunter and his lady are enough to paralyze the morals of the whole parish at a time like this. Do not you know the plan they go upon? They keep their outer gates locked, lest any one from the village should set foot within their grounds. Every article left at the lodge for the use of the family is fumigated before it is admitted into the house, and it is generally understood that neither the gentleman nor the lady will leave the estate, in any emergency whatever. Till the disease has entirely passed away, our poor are not to have the solace of their presence even in church during this time of peril, when the face of the prosperous is like light in a dark place. Sir William makes it no secret that they would have left home altogether, if they could have hoped to be safer anywhere else, if they could have gone anywhere without danger of meeting the fever, if the fact had not been, said Hester, as Mrs. Howell states it, that the epidemic prevails partially everywhere. There is a case where Lady Hunter's example immediately operates, observed Dr. Levitt. If Lady Hunter had not forgotten herself in her duty, Mrs. Howell would have given the benefit of her good offices to some who she might have served, for she is really a kind-hearted woman, but she is struck with the panic because Lady Hunter is, and one cannot get a word with her or Miss Miskin. I saw that her shutters were nearly closed, observed Margaret. I suppose she had lost some relation. No, she is only trying to shut out the fever. She and Miss Miskin are afraid of the milkman, and each tries to put upon the other the peril of serving a customer. This panic will destroy us if it spreads. The sisters looked at each other, and in one glance exchanged agreement that the time was fully come for them to act abroad, let what would become of their own comforts. I ought to add, however, 
said Dr. Levitt, that Sir William Hunter has supplied my poor's purse with money very liberally. I spend his money as freely as my own at a time like this, but I tell him that one hour of his presence among us would do more good than all the gold he can send. His answer comes in the shape of a handsome draft on his banker, smelling strongly of aromatic vinegar. They fumigate even their blotting paper. It seems to me I did hope my last letter would have brought him the call. Our friends are very ready with their money, said Hope. I should have begged of you before this, but that Mr. Gray has been liberal in that way, he concludes it to be impossible that he should look himself into the wants of the village, but he permits me to use his purse pretty freely. Is there anything that you can suggest that can be done by me, Dr. Levitt? Is there any case unknown to me where I can be of service? Or I, said Margaret, my brother and sister will spare me and put up with some hardship at home. I know if you can point out any place where I can be more useful. To be sure I can, much as I like to come to your house, to witness and feel the thorough comfort which I always find in it. I own I shall care little to see everything that sixes and sevens here for a few weeks. If you will give me your time and talents for such services as we gentlemen cannot perform, and as we cannot at present hire persons to undertake, you see, I take you at your word, my dear young lady. If you had not offered, I should not have asked you as you have. I snatch at the good you hold out. I mean to preach a very plain sermon next Sunday on the duties of neighbors in a season of distress like this, and I shall do it with the better hope, if I have. Meanwhile, a fellow laborer of your sex, no less valuable in her way than my friend Hope in his. I shall come and hear your sermon, said Hester, if Margaret will take charge of my boy for the hour. I want to see clearly what is my duty at a time when claims conflict as they do now. There was at present no time for the conscientious and charitable to lose in daylight loiterings over the table, or chat by the fireside in a few minutes the table was cleared and Margaret ready to proceed with Dr. Levitt to the Platt's cottage. As soon as Margaret saw what was the real state of affairs in the cottage, she sent away Dr. Levitt, who could be of no use till some degree of decency was instituted in the miserable abode. What to set about first was Margaret's difficulty. There was no one to help her but Mrs. Platt's mother, who was sitting down to wait the result of the fortune-teller's predictions. Her daughter lay moaning on a bedstead, spread with shavings only, and she had no covering, whatever but a blanket worn into a large hole in the middle. The poor woman's long hair, unconfined by any cap, strayed about her bare and emaciated shoulders, and her shrunken bands picked at the blanket incessantly, everybody appearing to her diseased vision, covered with black spots. Never before had so squalled an object met Margaret's eyes. The husband sat by the empty grave, stooping and shrinking, and looking at the floor with an idiotic expression of countenance, as appeared through the handkerchief, which was tied over his head. He was just sinking into the fever. His boy lay on a heap of rags in the corner, his head also tied up, but the handkerchief, stiff with the black hood, which was still oozing from his nose, ears, and mouth. It was inconceivable to Margaret that her brother, with Mr. Gray's money in his pocket, could have left the family in his state. He had not. There were cinders in the hearth which showed that there had been a fire, and the old woman acknowledged that a pair of sheets and a rug 
had been pawned to the fortune-teller in the lane since the morning. There had been food, but nobody had any appetite but herself, and she had eaten it up. The fortune-teller had charmed the pail of fresh water that stood under the bed, and had promised a new spell in the morning. In a case of such extremity, Margaret had no fears. She set forth alone for the fortune-tellers, not far off, and redeemed the sheets and blanket, which were quite clean, and she went. She was sorry. She had dismissed Dr. Levitt so soon as a magistrate. He could have immediately compelled the restoration of the bedding. The use of his name, however, answered the purpose, and the conjurer even offered to carry the articles for her to Platt's house. She so earnestly desired to keep him and her charge apart that she preferred loading herself with the package. Then the shavings were found to be in such a state that every shred of them must be removed before the sick man could be allowed to lie down. No time was to be lost. In the face of the old woman's protestations that her daughter should not stir, Margaret spread the bedding on the floor, wrapped the sick woman in a sheet, and laid her upon it. Finding the poor creature so light from emaciation, she was as easy to lift as a child. The only thing that the old woman would consent to do was to go with a pencil note to Mr. Gray and bring back the clean dry straw which would be given her in his yard. She went in hopes of receiving something else with the straw, and while she was gone, Margaret was quite alone with the sick family. Struggling to surmount her disgust at the task, she resolved to employ the interval in removing the shavings. The pail containing the charmed water was the only thing in the cottage which would hold them, and she made bold to empty it in the dish close at hand. Platt was capable of watching all she did, and he made a frightful gesture of rage at her as she re-entered. She saw in the shadow of the handkerchief his quivering lips move in the act of speaking, and her ear caught the words of an oath. Her situation now was far from pleasant, but it was still a relief that no one was by to witness what she saw and was doing. She conveyed pailful after pailful of the noisome shavings to the dunghill at the back of the cottage, wondering the while that the inhabitants of the dwelling were not all dead of the fever long ago. She almost gave over her task when a huge toad crawled upon her foot from its resting place. Among the shavings, she shrunk from it, and was glad to see it make for the door of its own accord. Platt again growled, and clenched his fist at her. He probably thought that she had again broken a charm for which he had paid money. She spoke kindly and cheerfully again and again, but he was either deaf or too ill to understand, to relieve the sense of dreariness. She went to work again. She thoroughly cleansed the pail and filled it afresh from the brook, looking anxiously down the lane for the approach of some human creature, and then applied herself to rubbing the bedstead as dry and clean as she could, with an apron of the old woman's. In due time her messenger returned, and with her Ben, carrying a truss of straw. His face was the face of a friend. We must have some warm water, Ben, to clean these poor creatures, and there seems to be nothing to make a fire with. And it would take a long time, miss, to get the coals and heat the water. And the poor soul lying there all the time. Could not I bring you a pail of hot water from the bonnet so blue quicker than that? Dew and soap and towels from home. Ben was gone from the pail during the whole time of spreading the straw on the bedstead. The old woman remonstrated against anything being done to her daughter beyond laying her where she was before and giving her a little warm spirits. But when she discovered that the charmed water had been thrown out, 
into the ditch. All to her seemed over. Her last hope was gone, and she sat down in a sulky silence, eyeing Margaret's proceedings without any offer to help. When the warm water arrived, and the sick woman seemed to like the sponging and drying of her fevered limbs, the mother began to relent, and at last approached to give her assistance, holding her poor daughter in her arms while Margaret spread the blanket and sheet on the straw, and then lifting the patient into the now clean bed. She was still unwilling to waste any time and trouble on the child in the corner, but Margaret was preparatory. She saw that he was dying, but not the less for this must he be made as comfortable as circumstances would permit. In half an hour he, too, was laid on his bed of clean straw, and the filthy rags with which he had been surrounded were deposited out of doors till someone who would wash them could come for them by a promise of fire and food margaret bribed the old woman to let things remain as they were while she went for her brother whose skill and care she hoped might now have some chance of saving his patience she recommended that platt himself should not attempt to sit up any longer and engaged to return in half an hour she paused on the threshold a minute to see how far Platt was able to walk. So great seemed to be difficulty with which he raised himself from his chair. With the old woman's assistance, once he stumbled and would have fallen, if Margaret had not sprung to his side. On recovering himself, he wrenched his arm from her and pushed her backwards with more force than she had supposed he possessed. There was a half-smile on the old woman's face as he did this, which made Margaret but she was more troubled by a look from the man which he caught from beneath the handkerchief that bound his head, a look which she could not fancy she had met before with the same feeling of uneasiness. When she had seen him safely seated on the bedside, she hastened away for her brother. They lost no more time in returning than just to step to widow's rise, to ask whether she would sit up with this miserable family this night. The widow would have done anything else in the world for Mr. Hope, and she did not positively refuse to do this. But the fear of her neighbors had so infected her, and her terror of a sick room was so extreme, that it was evident her presence there would do more harm than good. She was glad to compound for a less hazardous service, and agreed to wash for the sick. With all diligence, if she was not required to enter the houses, but might fetch the linen from tubs of water placed outside the doors, after seeing on plenty of water to heat. She now followed Hope and Margaret to the cottage in the lane. It was nearly dark, and they walked rapidly, Margaret describing as they went what she had done, and what she thought remained to be done, to give Mrs. Platt a chance of recovery. "'What now? Why do you start so?' cried Hope, as she stopped short in the middle of a sentence. Margaret even stood still for one moment. Hope looked the way she was looking, and saw in the little twilight that remained the figure of someone who had been walking on the opposite side of the road, but whose walk was now quickened to a run. It is, it is he, said Hope, as Philip disappeared from the darkness, answering to what he knew must be in Margaret's thoughts, he continued. He knows the state the village is in, the danger that we are all in, and he cannot stay away. We, all? When I say we, I mean you, particularly. If he thinks so, murmured Margaret, and stopped for breath. I think so, but it does not follow that there is any change. He has always loved you. Margaret, do not deceive yourself. Do not afflict yourself with expectations. Do not speak to me, brother. I cannot bear a word from you about him. 
Hope sighed deeply, but he could not remonstrate. He knew that Margaret had only too much reason for saying this. They walked on in entire silence to the lane. A fire was now kindled, and a light dimly burned in Platt's cottage, as Margaret stood by the bedside, watching her brother's examination of his patient, and anxious to understand rightly the directions he was giving. The poor woman half raised her head from her pillow, and fixed her dull eyes on Margaret's face, saying as if thinking aloud, The lady has heard some good news, sure. She looks cheerful like. The mother herself turned round to stare, and for the first time dropped a curtsy. I hope we shall see you look cheerful too, one day soon, if we nurse you well, said Margaret. Then, miss, don't let them move me, to take the blankets away, again. You shall not be moved unless you wish it. I am going to stay with you to-night. Her brother did not oppose this, for he did not know of the unpleasant glances and mutterings with which Platt rewarded all Margaret's good offices. Hope believed he should himself be out all night among his patients. He would come early in the morning, and now fairly warned Margaret that it was very possible that the child might die in the course of the night. She was not deterred by this, nor by her dread of the sick man. She had gained a new strength of soul, and this night she feared nothing. During the long hours there was much to do, three sufferers at once requiring her cares, and amidst all that she did, she was sustained by the thought that she had seen Philip, and that he was near. The abyss of nothingness was past, and she now trod the ground of certainty of his existence, and of his remembrance. When her brother entered, letting in the first gray of the morning, as he opened the cottage door, he found her almost untired, almost gay. Platt was worse, his wife much the same, and the child still living. The old woman's heart was so far touched with the unwonted comfort of the past night, and with her having been allowed, and even encouraged to take her rest, that she now offered her bundle of clothes for the lady to lie down upon and when that favor was declined, readily promised not to part with any article to the fortune-teller, till she should see some of Mr. Hope's family again. Hope thought Mrs. Platt might possibly get through, and this was all that was said on the way home. Margaret lay down to rest, to sweet sleep, for a couple of hours, and when she appeared below, her brother and sister had half done breakfast, and Mr. Gray and his twin daughters were with them. Mr. Gray came to say that he and all his family were to leave Deerbrook in two hours, where they should settle for the present. They had not yet made up their minds. The first object was to get away. The epidemic being now really too frightful to be encountered any longer, they should proceed immediately to Brighton, and there determine whether to go to the continent or seek some healthy place nearer home to stay in till Deerbrook should again be habitable. They were extremely anxious to carry Hester, Margaret, and the baby with them. They knew Mr. Hope could not desert his posts, but they thought he would feel as Dr. Levitt did, far happier to know that his family were out of danger than to have them with him. Hester had firmly refused to go from the first mention of the plan, and now Margaret was equally decided in expressing her determination to stay. Mr. Gray urged the extreme danger. Fanny and Mary hung about her and implored her to go, and to carry the baby with her. They should so like to have the baby with them for a great many weeks, and they would take care of him, and play with him all day long. Their father once more interposed for the child's sake. Hester might go to Brighton, there wean her infant, 
and return to her husband, so that the little helpless creature might at least be safe. Mr. Gray would not conceal that he considered this a positive duty, that the parents would have much to answer for. If anything should happen to the boy at home, the parents' hearts swelled. They looked at each other, and felt that this was not a moment in which to perplex themselves with calculations of incalculable things, with comparisons of the dangers which threatened their infant abroad and at home. This was a decision for their hearts to make. Their hearts decided that their child's right place was in his parents' arms, and that their best hope now, as at all other times, was to live and die together. Hester had heard from her husband of the apparition of the preceding evening, and she therefore knew that there was less of enthusiasm, as Mr. Gray called what some others would have named virtue, in Margaret's determination to stay than might appear. If Philip was here, how vain must be all attempts to remove her. Mr. Gray might as well set about persuading the old church tower to go with him, and so he found. Oh, cousin Margaret, said Mary in a whisper, with a face of much sorrow, Mamma will not ask Miss Young to go with us. If she should be ill while we are gone, if she should die. Nonsense, Mary, cried Fanny, partly overhearing and partly discussing what her sister had said. You know, Mamma says it's not convenient, and Miss Young is not like my cousins, as Mamma says. A member of a family, with people depending upon her, it is quite a different case, Mary, as you must know very well. Only think, Cousin Margaret, what an odd thing it will be to be so many weeks without saying any lessons. How we shall enjoy ourselves! But if Miss Young should be ill and die, persisted Mary, pooh, why should she be ill and die? more than Dr. Levitt, and Ben, and her cook, and my cousins, and all that are going to stay behind? Margaret, I do wish Cousin Hester would let us carry the baby with us. We shall have no lessons to do, you know, and we could play with him all day long. Yes, I wish he might go, said Mary, but Margaret, do you not think, if you spoke a word to Papa and Mamma, they would let me stay with Miss Young? I know she would make room for me, for she did for Phoebe when Phoebe nursed her, and I should like to stay and help her, and read to her, even if she should not be ill. I think Papa and Mamma might let me stay, if you ask them. I do not think they would, Mary, and I had rather not ask them. But I promise you that we will all take the best care we can of Maria. We will try to help and amuse her as well as you could wish. Come, Mary, we must go, cried Fanny. There is Papa giving Mr. Hope some money for the poor. People always go away quick after giving money. Goodbye, Cousin Margaret. We shall bring you some shells or something, I dare say, when we come back. Now let me kiss the baby once more. I can't think why you won't let him go with us. We should like so to have him. So do we, said Hester, laughing. As the door closed behind the greys, the three looked in each other's faces. That glance assured each other that they had done right and that glance was a mutual promise of cheerful fidelity through whatever might be impending. There was no sadness in the tone of their conversation, and when, within two hours, the greys went by, driven slowly, because there was a funeral train on each side of the way, there was full as much happiness in the faces that smiled a farewell from the windows, as in the gestures of the young people who started up in the carriage to kiss their hands and who were being borne away from the abode of danger and death to spend several weeks without doing any lessons often during this day was the voice of mirth 
even heard in this dwelling. It was not like the mirth of the well-known company of the prisoners in the first French Revolution, men who knew that they should leave their prison only to lose their heads, and who, once mutually acknowledging this, agreed vainly and the pusillanimously to banish from that hour all sad, all grave thoughts, and laugh till they died. It is not this mirth of despair, nor yet that of carelessness, nor yet that of defiance, nor were theirs the spirits of the patriot in the hour of struggle, nor of the hero in the crisis of danger, in a peril like theirs. There is nothing imposing to the imagination, or flattering to the pride, or immediately appealing to the energies of the soul. There were no resources for them in emotions of valor or patriotism. Theirs was the gaiety of simple faith and innocence. They had acted from pure inclination, from affection, unconscious of pride, of difficulty, of merit, and they were satisfied and gay as the innocent ought to be, enjoying what there was to enjoy, and questioning and fearing nothing beyond. From a distant point of time or place, such a state of spirits in the midst of a pestilence may appear unnatural and wrong, but experience proves that it is neither. Whatever observers may think, it is natural, and it is right that minds strong enough to be settled, either in a good or evil frame should preserve their usual character amidst any changes of circumstance. To those involved in new events, they appear less strange than in prospect or in review. Habitual thoughts are present, familiarizing wonderful incidents and the fears of the selfish, the repose of the religious and speculations of the thoughtful, and the gaiety of the innocent pervade the life of each. Let what will be happening yet to the prevailing mood the circumstances of the time will interpose on occasional check this very evening when margaret was absent at the cottage in the lane and hope wearied with his toils among the sick all the night and all this day was apparently sleeping for an hour on the sofa hester's heart grew heavy as she lulled her infant to rest by the fire and she thought on what was passing in the houses of her neighbors Death seemed to close around the little being she held in her arms as she gazed in his face, watching the slumber sealing on. She murmured over him, "'Oh, my child, my child, if I should lose you, what should I do?' "'Hester, my love,' said her husband, in a tone of tender remonstrance, "'what do you mean?' "'I did not think you would hear me, love, but I thank you.' "'What did I mean?' "'Not exactly what I said. "'For God knows I would strive to part willingly with whatever he might see fit to take away.' But, oh, Edward, what a struggle it would be, and how near it comes to us. How many mothers are now parting from their children? God's will be done, cried Hope, starting up and standing over his babe. Are you sure? Edward, may we feel quite certain that we have done rightly by our boy in keeping him here? I am satisfied, my love, Then I am prepared. How still he is now! How like death it looks! What, that warm, breathing sleep! no more like death than his laugh is like sin. And Hope looked about him for pencil and paper, and hastily sketched his boy in all the beauty of repose. Before he went forth again among the stick and wretched, it was very like, and Hester placed it before her as she piled her needle all that long solitary evening. End of chapter 41